You're listening to Supervision with a Vision, where we discuss all things supervision. I'm your host, Sarah, professional counselor, marriage and family therapist, play therapist, eating disorder specialist, and cookie lover, with my co-host, Heather, marriage and family therapist, certified together in Texas counselor, a Texas transplant from California, and outdoor adventurer. Hi, welcome to Supervision with a Vision. Today, Heather and I are discussing when supervision feels good and when it doesn't. This week, we read Why Good Supervision in Psychotherapy Matters from Psychology Today. One of the points it made is that the early experiences we have in our training really shapes our career. Heather, what are some experiences that you had early on that you feel like really has shaped your career? I started not in psychology. I started in education. I was working at private school school. And the director of that program put a component into the education about character. Just really loved that he did it. But I also started paying attention. All the things that he did with staff revolved around character and what it meant to have a different character trait that we were teaching to the kids every month. He held the staff accountable. That was one of the first things that really impacted me going into family therapy. Mm -hmm. I can think of some of my early experiences. A lot of them could be summed up with, or some of my favorite ones at least, could be summed up with play hard, work hard. Yes. I enjoyed my co workers so much and they had so much fun and they worked their butts off. Mm -hmm. They cared. Mm -hmm. It was important to them. Their work and what they were doing was really important to them. They were passionate about it. And man, did they relax and enjoy themselves when they weren't working. I think that that really made an impression on me. Right. Something that you were able to hold on to. Other things that have made big impacts were also sometimes big mistakes. Right. I worked in a juvenile detention center as one of my first, either it was practicum or internship sites. It was a juvenile detention center center and it happened that all of the therapy personnel were women oh. and all of the clients were boys. They were all Goodness. 12 to 18 year old right. boys in this juvenile detention center and all of their therapists were women. Right as I was starting, another therapist got in trouble and left before getting fired. She was handing out a copy of a book that was really, I don't know how you would describe it, explicit. Okay. And she was writing her name and and her phone number oh. on the inside cover. Quite the invitation. To, right, to, all to the... teenage boys who were locked up wow. for a long time. So mm. they didn't have a lot of other ways to express themselves right. and she was giving them explicit material. That was an experience early on that really opened my eyes and made me appreciate all of the huge impact that that had right. on the clients, the program. Really quickly after she left, management made a lot of changes that limited what the therapist could do mm -hmm. because of that problem. And I went, you know, now there are kids who aren't getting the things that they would have gotten previously right? because now we have to have many more rules to protect them from something that should have been a support. Right, from the get-go, from mm -hmm. the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had an early on experience with a supervisor. Thankfully, he was my supervisor for a very short amount of time, but I was part of helping with a chart audit. And I remember I would give him all the things I found that were mm -hmm. wrong. I would give him these stacks of things with flags on 
on them. And then I realized he wasn't doing anything but taking my flags off and refiling them. So he just didn't care about the chart audit, essentially giving me busy work to do. And I felt Mm, completely devalued by it. Somebody, of course, found out about it. And then I was questioned about it. That's a supervisor that I like. That's disappointing. Right. He was like a nice person. He just didn't do well at his job. Mm. I don't know why he was hiding the audit or not fixing things that needed to be fixed. Often he would say, oh, she doesn't work here anymore. Just put it in this pile. That sounds like an experience that was mixed. I mean, it was very mixed. Mm -hmm. There were positives within that situation. And there were also things that you learned maybe that you didn't want to repeat. I have an example like that. One of my first jobs out of school, I learned an awful lot. Some of the things that I learned were things that I definitely take with me and continue to try and use. And some of the things that I learned are things that I told myself I would never do again. Right. Or that I would never be involved in again. Right. One of those, it sounds pretty bad, but actually I took it away as a positive. When I interviewed for one of those early jobs, the clinical director was very clear that she wanted me to look at the restraint room before I took the position because other therapists had been hired and then realized that the restraint room was something that was used and they were upset Mm -hmm. and didn't work as a team when the restraint room was involved. She needed a team player. I didn't like the idea of the restraint room. I did take the job. I was able to, to wrap my head around why that was used and how it was used. But what I took away from that was I want to be well informed about what I'm getting myself into. Right. And that now as a supervisor and sometimes manager, I want to give anyone that I'm considering hiring a fair chance to know what they're getting themselves into. Right. I don't want someone who doesn't want the things that they're going to be asked to do or knows of themselves that it's not something that they would handle well. I appreciated that and that supervisor that she did expose me to that mm-hmm. right away. And I have taken that with me that it's something I want to offer or provide people when I'm working with them right. too. Well, and especially to make sure they have the same mindset. Heather, the second point in our article this week is the importance of the parallel process that's happening during supervision. Can you think of any times where you've experienced your personal growth as a supervisor at the same time you're witnessing the personal growth of one of your supervisees? Yes. It was interesting. He was the first male supervisee I had. Mm. That was really great because Mm -hmm. I hadn't experienced understanding therapy from a different point of view. And he and I were very, very different. Mm. He would have different ideas about how to interact with clients, whether it be teenagers or adults. He would share an intervention that he tried. In my head, I remember going, well, that's going to go bad. Mm -hmm. And then he'd get this great outcome. And I've learned and grew a lot from that situation. The two of you had many different situations situations or times where you were both learning from each other. One specific example that I can think of, I know that I am not great at using different pronouns in language. Oh, yes. I can think through it and get it right if I have, if I'm writing something, Mm -hmm. but if I'm trying to use different pronouns conversationally, I get so tripped up. It's helpful to me in the past when I've had interns or supervisees that are more effective or fluent in doing that, I'm happy to practice practice with them. Like, please practice right. with me. So in this scenario, is it they, them? I don't even know. I just get tripped up. And that has been helpful to me. I think part of being a counselor that's always new and surprising is there is an unlimited amount of scenarios to encounter right. that you just learn from every time. So I think that I, in supervision, get the opportunity of learning from scenarios that my supervisees are involved in. Right. Recently, I had a supervisee and a coincidence, really, that we talked through how to 
to handle parents who are divorced and ensuring that you have paperwork and how to handle different scenarios and how to make sure that you're communicating effectively and professionally in right. different situations. The very next time she saw that client, it became a major issue. Mm-hmm. And when she came back, she said, shoot, you called it. Right. It became a major issue. But the way that it was a problem had never occurred for me. Oh. I'm learning from this. Right. So let me think through how you would handle this given another mm-hmm. opportunity or what you could improve on or what you thought you did well. But it gave me a chance to think, what is the best situation to do that? Within her scenario, we had to talk through how to document what was said in person, what was said in email, what was said mm-hmm. in a voicemail, and who those different people were. And it was good practice. And it was really applicable to any counselor, I think, that works with kids. Right. Divorce situations are going to come up in a whole variety of different right. ways. Well, and always great for the supervisor to have to revisit those topics that we pretty much have a good handle on most mm-hmm. of the time, but to see them unfold in a different way. The, you know, maybe the typical visitation schedule, it was something different I haven't heard right. of before. Yeah. Right. Heather, the third point in our article was the importance of building emotional intelligence mm-hmm. in, through supervision. What are some ways that you build emotional intelligence through supervision? I can remember a time I was working with someone that was in their practicum and then they were just questioning if they could do therapy for a career. And they were a little bit panicky and they were talking about, I just have all these thoughts after my sessions and I'm worrying about my clients afterwards and I'm sometimes emotional. She hadn't ever had the experience of having an emotional reaction to her work day. I mean, it was a hard, big thing for her. If you're young, you've been in college, you've had jobs to get you through college, the kinds of jobs you've had might be working a cash register. Right. She'd only done medical filing in the back room of a doctor's office. No people involved, nothing. No emotion, no big emotions. Right. And not learning how to manage that, not only Mm -hmm. within herself in a session, but also what to do after. What you're describing as her big concern is so relatable. Right. I mean, do you still occasionally have times where you think, what am I even doing? Right. (laughs) So it's an important big question for a counselor. Right. Listening, not just in order to reflect feeling, but listening for that deeper meaning. Right. I'm imagining listening to her, you kind of had to piece together her meaning in order to be able to discuss what was happening for her. So much of this was brand new for her Mm -hmm. and she hadn't experienced it before. A lot of my other supervisees had been people that had had an education background or they'd already worked in some form of mental health just without a degree. And so Mm -hmm. this was the first time that I had worked with someone that had no awareness to how emotionally taxing, I don't know if that's the right word, but the connection is is, and how important it is to know that about yourself. You do kind of build up some resistance, I believe, over time. You don't react to every client, Mm -hmm. but there's always an emotional connection. We're dealing with people's lives and Mm -hmm. people's relationships. That's a real challenge, I think, of counselor education programs. You just really can't give someone a taste of what it's like to be a counselor until they're really right Right. there on the edge of being a counselor. Someone like this student or intern or supervisee just might not have had the chance yet to experience what it's like to work in a helping profession. And Um, all we really did to alter that plan was to make sure her client load stayed small for a little while mm-hmm. so that she wasn't completely overwhelmed as she also learned to manage some of that. Mm-hmm. Something that I run into often in supervision is a supervisee asking me, hey, well, what do I do? Mm. You know, probably that question first comes from their client asking the supervisee, what do I do? Mm-hmm. And then the supervisee turns around and asks me, okay, what do I do? I think building emotional intelligence or teaching emotional intelligence in a supervisee 
means answering that question without giving them the answer. Right. So responding, but not saying, step one, right. do this. Step two, nod and lean in and, <laughs> and say, mm-hmm. That's not right. what's that going to make counseling effective or work. Right. I like that idea that it's not answering the question exactly, but it's responding to the question right. through understanding, through practicing what it looks like to build emotional intelligence right. rather than giving a paint-by-number or step-by-step. Right. Something that I've used with eating disorder clients that is a little more step-by-step, but it's for the purpose of building emotional intelligence is the hunger fullness scale Mm -hmm. and an emotional check-in at the same time. So I'm asking them to check in with their body and give me a description of what they're noticing in their body. Mm -hmm. And in this case, how hungry or not hungry they are. Right. At the same time, also talking about emotions. So then they're connecting and being made aware of, do those things match or are they in conflict with each other? Right. How are those impacting each other? So to build that awareness and emotional intelligence. I think sometimes it could be adapted and would be helpful for a supervisee to use something like that in supervision. Absolutely. Heather, the last thing that we discussed after having read our article this week was the importance and what it's like to hold space for supervisees in supervision. Mm -hmm. That you just allow them to have time to process those things that are going through their heads that they're not going to be able to say to anybody else. They're not going to be able to say those things to their client. A lot of times I know for myself, if I can talk it out, sometimes I come to my own solution even by conferring with a colleague. I just needed space. Right, I agree. Sometimes in supervision, it's purposeful because there might not be anybody else in your life that would understand the counseling dynamic quite the same way a supervisor would. Right. You could maybe go home and say, man, I had a tough client today. It might not hold the same meaning for that person at home who's listening as it does for a supervisee who's lived that kind of experience before. So even to have that base to just experience and express what it's like is important. Admittedly, I think that this is super important and sometimes I let other things get in the way. Mm-hmm. I think it's easy to let other things mm-hmm. sneak in. I uh, was just thinking times where I feel like this gets away from me are times when I feel like I've got so many things on my to-do list with that supervisee yes. that I want to make sure we talk about training for telehealth, that mm-hmm. I make sure, I want to make sure we're talking about how many direct hours they're getting or all the logistic things. And maybe it's not even just logistic things, but I'm telling them there's a CEU opportunity that I think would be really great for you. It applies to the client you're working with, right. things like that that are useful and practical, but it's still not always right. preserving that important space just for being, right. for just, listening. Right. Just listening through whatever's happening. Mm-hmm. It gets really easy, especially if you know they're working with a certain population to jump right in with those things. It's hard to balance. Mm-hmm. One way that I do that, I think I've mentioned before, I start out sessions and say, let's take care of housekeeping stuff. And we talk about whatever it is, right. that their credit card that I have on file has expired, mm-hmm. or if we need to change our appointment time for next week or right. things like that. Right. And I try and and include, I saw this CEU thing, I'm going to email it to you and then say, okay, we're done with that. Let's move on to Mm -hmm. talking about clients. I like that. Holding space. Right. Sometimes that works better for me than other times I I get carried away. Yeah. (laughs) Just like, okay, in these first five minutes, let's get these Mm -hmm. things done and then we can move forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just shaking my finger at myself for not always keeping that space for listening. The importance to me is that they really feel safe when you do regularly have time to listen, to discuss 
discuss, to mm-hmm. just appreciate the emotion and what they're doing and what they're learning. I think then it means they bring things to you more quickly. Right. They feel safe to say, I don't know what I'm doing or I need help here. Uh, it creates an important safe place. I think that develops, but it's great when it can develop quickly. Then they have more time with a supervisor that has that space. Thanks for listening. Today we talked about when supervision feels really good and when it doesn't. You've been listening to Supervision with a Vision. Head on over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Be sure to check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Therapy Academy to join the conversation and get show notes. We'll be back next week with more Supervision with a Vision.